0: Major support for Carolina Business Review provided by Grant Thornton. Operating in more than 100 countries, our tax, audit, and advisory professionals specialize in helping companies unlock their growth potential. Colonial Life, providing benefits to employees to help them protect their family, their finances, and their futures. High Point University, the premier life skills university focused on preparing students for the world as it is going to be. and a global manufacturer of consumer and industrial packaging products and provider of packaging services with more than 300 operations in 35 countries
1: it is not a stretch to think that the healthcare industry is in fact one of the biggest industries affected by this public health care crisis we will wade into that a bit on this program and it starts in just a moment later on joining us is dr tounde Satunde, he is the president and chief executive officer of the large healthcare insurer, Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Carolina. And we will unpack all things COVID economic and business policy related. Please stay with us, our dialogue starts now.
0: Gratefully acknowledging support by Martin Marietta, a leading provider of natural resource-based building materials, providing the foundation upon which our communities improve and grow. Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, an independent licensee of the Blue Cross and Blue Shield Association. Visit us at SouthCarolinaBlues.com. The Duke Endowment, a private foundation enriching communities in the Carolinas through higher education, health care, rural churches, and children's services. Barings, a leading global asset management firm dedicated to meeting the evolving investment and capital needs of its clients. Learn more at Barings.com. On this edition of Carolina Business Review, Janet Labar of Charlotte Regional Business Alliance, Patrick Michaels, Goodwill Industries, Upstate and Midlands, South Carolina, and special guest, Dr. Tunde Sotunde of Blue Cross and Blue Shield of North Carolina.
1: And welcome again to our program. We're glad to have Janet Labar and Patrick Michaels with us. Uh, welcome to you both. Nice to see you again. Janet, you'll get the first pitch for better or for worse. Um, you know, these, these, these conventions like the Democratic National Convention and the Republican National Convention are hyper-partisan, there's no doubt about it, but there was a lot of hype leading up to Charlotte winning the Republican National Convention, especially since they also hosted the DNC. Uh, Given COVID-19, there wasn't any expectation it was going to nearly have the impact. But Janet, any kind of final thoughts on what the RNC meant for the region?
2: Thanks, Chris. Absolutely. No question. Uh, A a devastating missed opportunity, um, not only to... uh, give us a world stage of what the charlotte region is who we are what a great place it is to do business but truly that impact of spending uh, that didn't happen in the small businesses and the medium sized businesses and vendors across the region who would have frankly uh, frankly gained you know from that from that spend the folks coming into uh, to charlotte the city and the and the surrounding region so um it, it's a it's a disappointment, and yet with the pandemic and everything else that's going on, you know, I think that in the end, it probably worked out the way it did. I just, I, I really feel for our economy and the businesses that we could have had. It, you know, the DNC had something north of $165 million of economic impact. So while it's in the early days too, too soon to quantify um, what the 300-plus folks who came in for the RNC did, um, it's still, a huge missed opportunity for us,
1: J- Janet. A quick follow up on that. So, were the worst fears realized? And, and, and I'm, I'm not insensitive to what happened in hospitality or food retailing or, or any socialized activity. Were the re- worst fears realized when it came to unemployment in those sectors?
2: Yeah, I, I you know, it, it's hard to say that you can draw RNC t- directly to unemployment and what's going on there. I mean, we had our worst quarter, um, this. Year, the region saw 156,000 jobs lost. Um, people are still reeling from unemployment loss and displacement of work. And you know, again, I don't think you can directly tie that to impact of RNC. Um, the pandemic has, has been the root cause. And again, it's where we where we landed in terms of not being able to host the RNC at full scale. And to your you know to your question around hospitality, too, 40% of those jobs that we lost were in the hospitality and tourism industry.
1: Patrick, you know, when you reflect on, you've been listening to Janet and I talk about jobs, but when you reflect on jobs, there seems to be a dichotomy or, or at least a disconnect between jobs, those seeking jobs and jobs available at some of the large manufacturers. This idea that there are plenty of, or there are maybe not plenty, but many jobs out there that are not being filled. Is that a rumor or can you substantiate that?
3: You know, our experience here in the upstate and Midlands is that there are large employers who are looking for people to go to work and are unable to fill those jobs. And so back in February, I think our unemployment in South Carolina was under 3%. By April, it was over 12 And in July, it's back to 8+. How that kind of plays out is that means there are over 200,000 South Carolinians that are, were formerly employed who are not currently employed, but there are also still over 40,000 jobs posted throughout the state with employers seeking qualified candidates. So that the gap that kind of existed in February at, for very different reasons probably exists in um, July, August as well.
1: Do you feel like there's a reticence, still a reticence, even after some of the federal unemployment benefits have have lapsed now? Is there still a reticence for folks thinking, I'm going to wait, I get paid better by not working? Is that sense still out there?
3: You know, potentially. We have not seen people come back into our job connections um, at the level we thought we might after Mm -hmm. the pandemic unemployment assistance ended the average weekly wage for a South Carolinian is under $900. So you have to expect that that pandemic unemployment assistance was a godsend to a lot of people who in fact lost their jobs. And so, you know, maybe there is still some reticence to look at whether the, the, the follow on federal program at 400 a week, because it might be retroactive to the July 25th end date of the pandemic unemployment assistance may affect some. Um, but there are still also you know, people who do want to go to work and may just not have quite the skills to fit the jobs that are out there.
1: Janet, how do, you, how, do you, how do you characterize that same question or that same issue about trying to find the disconnect between those that clearly need jobs and the jobs available? Do you see the same thing that Patrick just described?
2: Yeah, you know, we don't have the, the hard numbers behind that, but we recently convened a, a table of HR folks in the manufacturing sector specifically, and what we heard from them is that they are hiring. We know that industry-wide there has been a slowdown, uh, largely due, again, to the pandemic in terms of slowing orders, primarily for our region and our bi-state region that's been in transportation and automotive. However, these manufacturers are still hiring. I think the fact that they aren't finding the, the skilled talent um in droves as you know patrick was saying that you know the upskilling is necessary um is a, a need for us to respond as a business community to see what we can do to invest in programs um like those that that goodwill op- that goodwill offers to make sure that people can get upskilled, and new skilled and reskilled in the pandemic environment too many people have lost their jobs and there is real opportunity to connect them with Employment, but they need a little bit more help. So, you know, folks like Goodwill, our community colleges across the, the bi state region, again, are going to be really integral players to making sure that we rebound from this.
1: And, you know, you, we, can't, we cannot talk about folks without jobs or, or no income and not have a housing discussion to some degree here. Patrick, back to you about this housing in the state of South Carolina or in the upstate or in the Midlands, wherever you might feel most comfortable talking about it. Is housing has has the housing crisis for those at risk? Are we at the worst case scenario? Are we past the worst case scenario? Is there still more pain in that?
3: You know, Chris, my sense is is there's potentially more pain if you look at people who are out of work and who are and who are seeking employment. You know, if they started at an average weekly wage of around nine hundred dollars. Mm-hmm losing that has to make an impact and housing being a big part of any household's budget is going to end up being in a crunch. So we are definitely seeing people come into our financial stability centers wanting some help with budgeting, wanting some help with trying to make and stretch the resources that they have. So there's a lot of insecurity and I'm not sure that quite the worst of that is over. I think that lags kind of re-employment by a little bit as people try to catch up and get on their feet and maybe buy groceries before they pay, pay for rent.
1: Janet, uh, we got a couple minutes before we bring our guest in. And I'll, I want to at least talk a little bit about the momentum now, now that schools are open. We've got at least three weeks of school, depending on where you live, and if you started earlier, many places in South Carolina do. But do you, get, do you, do you feel, again, do you get the sense that schools opening has allayed a lot of those fears of uncertainty of how it was going to look, even whether it's in-person or virtual? Is the momentum of the school opening, um, making people feel more comfortable about things or are there still issues around kids at risk, education, efficiencies, things like that?
2: Short of it is yes and yes, Chris. <laughs> I think uh, for, for the folks who, who can, uh, the certainty of having, you know whether it's virtual or in-person or some hybrid of that, again, depending on where you are in the region, And that's that's great, you know, that the kids are are back in a learning environment. I think the the yes to your other question is that, again, the pandemic and then the social uh, and the um, racial injustices that we have seen revealed by, uh, further revealed by the pandemic have just shown us that there's greater disparity um, across our communities for people who don't have access to the Internet or don't have the technology um, or don't even have the 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 structure and the framework in their own household to be able to have their children uh, learn um, adequately. And so I think you know it is still a kind of a tale of of two cities, if you will, for our entire region, that there are the haves and the have-nots. And we as, again, the the Charlotte Regional Business Alliance, I'm sure Patrick would join me in this, but the business community, the community-based organizations, nonprofits, government, there's an active effort to make sure that we are working to close that gap because this is, we're going to be in this for a while yet, and, and we've got to figure out how to make sure that we're not leaving people behind.
1: Yeah, quickly, uh, Patrick, quickly in about 30 seconds, do you feel like, as Janet just described it, and we, as we talked about schools so far, that this is, this is the pressure that will compel lawmakers in both states to finish that last mile of connectivity when we talk about broadband access. Is this going to be the thing that finally does that broadband access build out?
3: You, you know, let, let's hope so, Chris. I mean, you know, I don't go to a place that doesn't have broadband, but we serve people every day who are never in a place in which they ha- don't have to pay uh, quite a significantly in order to to use the internet like I take for granted. And so I I hope if there was another nudge needed, this is it.
1: It is not a stretch to think that the healthcare industry is probably one of the biggest businesses impacted by COVID-19. Joining us now is the, and I think it's fair to say, the newly minted chief executive officer, president, and CEO Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Carolina, Dr. Tunde Sotunde. Dr. Sotunde, welcome to the program. Nice to
4: see you, sir. Thank you. Glad to be here and looking forward to the conversation today.
1: Uh, Starting on June 1st, you became became the new CEO of Blue Cross Blue Shield in North Carolina. How how has that affected or adapt, how has it affected the way that your strategy is going to adapt to, this is my term sir, to just jump into a company at a crisis point and not necessarily about the company, but certainly about public health?
4: Yeah, that's a great question. So, you know, never in my wildest dreams did I ever imagine that I'll be taking over the hell of this organization in the midst of a pandemic. It's been a sprint, literally, uh, from day one. Um, You know, frankly speaking, I had to throw out my 100 to 120 day plan, you know, Mm -hmm. what I intended to accomplish, day 30, 60, 90, that, you know, went out the window, literally on day one Um, my focus my number one focus and priority like many of us has been all about navigating through this pandemic in the early days weeks early months of the pandemic we took very swift actions to move or transition about 98 percent of our workforce to operate in a virtual environment And we did that not only to ensure their health, safety, and welfare, but also Mm -hmm. to ensure that we could continue to meet the needs of our 3.8 million consumers across the state of North Carolina, many of whom, probably more so than ever before, needed our help the most. Also so we could meet the needs of our thousands of employee group customers, the needs of our healthcare provider partners, the healthcare professionals, the men and women who have been at the front line of dealing with this pandemic, and also ways and actions that we could take in order to support the broader communities in which we all live and work. Mm -hmm. So that has been my priority in the near term, but at the same time, we have also spent quite a bit of time, in our free time, so to speak, thinking through long-term. How do we accelerate towards our vision, our stated vision at Blue Cross of North Carolina of providing access to equitable, affordable healthcare for all. So it's it's been a sprint. Unfortunately, it looks like it's turning out to be a marathon, mm-hmm. um, but, you know, I feel comfortable with, um, the actions we've taken in the near-term, the short-term, and how we're thinking through the long-term, life after COVID, because this too shall pass.
1: We'd like to allow the panelists to get uh, some questions in here. Janet, why don't you start, please?
2: Yeah, thank you, Chris. Uh, Tunde, welcome uh, to uh, the region, and it's great to have you in the Carolinas. I'm curious about you know, what you just mentioned in terms of all of the changes and the remarkable Uh, changes we've been going through as a community with not only the pandemic, but you being new, um, the remarkable challenges that we're seeing in in racial inequity. Um, How are your employees doing? How's the team doing with all of this?
4: I mean, this is uncharted territory for all of us, Uh, you know, frankly speaking, you know, to the point that you made, this is, you know, and and I'm a healthcare professional uh, for many, if not all of us, this is the most unprecedented public health crisis that we've ever had to deal with in our lifetimes and hopefully is the last that we will deal with in this lifetime you know but having said that you know as a healthcare organization you know we have always been front and center um, of providing solutions you know for not just individuals but the communities in which um, we all live and work Um, I will share with you that over the years one of our key strategic priorities has been around how do we address the social and environmental issues right that we all know impact the health and well-being not only of individuals but also the communities in which we all live and work you know whether it's access to employment uh, uh, fair housing Uh, uh, basic primary care services, transportation, you know, you name it. So, you know, I I think, um, and unlike the healthcare providers, the professionals that are front and center of dealing with this pandemic, you know, we as a health insurance company, I've often said, are more upstream, but we have always, you know, had a line of sight, I've always had a laser focus on addressing these issues. So, you know, it's challenging for all of us. You know, I spend a lot of time, you know, building up morale amongst my team, engaging my team, you know, trying to make sure physically, mentally, emotionally, they're in a good place. But this is what we do. It's at a different level, but this is what we have always done. And I just feel good, I'm extremely proud of the team and all that they've accomplished up to this point.
1: Patrick?
3: Yeah, hi, Tunde. I, I've got on my mind essential workers and folks who have been essential in April, May, June, July, and, and it's kind of continued. And I'm wondering, just as, a, as an insurer, have you seen the pattern of services that people seek change? In other words, are people at this point uh, seeking out more in the way of mental health services? Are you seeing more work, like work-related like work injuries as, as fatigue may set in? And I'm just wondering if you see any changes in patterns.
4: Yes, I, I think you're yeah, absolutely right. I mean, you nailed it. Um, you know, in the first couple of months of the pandemic, we saw a steep drop-off in utilization of routine, non-emergent elective services or care. However, what we continue to see and has continued to trend up is, you know, access to or of behavioral health services, mental health services, you know, Mm -hmm. trauma services, and so on. Um, Luckily, or thankfully, as you probably know, One of the modalities that we have been pushing for years now, so for 20 years, Blue Cross of North Carolina has covered telehealth. However, for various reasons, the utilization of telehealth has been minimal. It has skyrocketed over the last several months, and it is being used to a fair degree for mental health services counseling, you know, and so on. Um, and, And I believe that that is here to stay because it's a very effective modality, you know, to be able to provide real time access to care, particularly for individuals who are in crisis and need that access right now, this second, this minute.
1: Let, let's, let's unpack the services of, of healthcare and providers as well as payers as you all are, Mr. President. Let me, let me ask you the question this way. What has the public health crisis, what has COVID-19 revealed about the, the biggest hmm. issues or maybe the biggest issue, singular issue that needs to be changed about healthcare right now?
4: You know, that's a great question. Let, let me put it this way. This pandemic has done a lot. On what I'm going to describe as fractures or flaws within not just the healthcare system but society as a whole is light on the fact that the magnitude of health disparity is much much more significant than I think even us in healthcare mm-hmm. realize. Case in point, I was taken aback, and many others I've spoken with to learn that here in the state of North Carolina, 22% of the population African Americans, they account for 34, 35% of the cases. Actually, the death, mortality rate. Similarly, Hispanic Latinx population communities, 10% of the population in North Carolina, they account for almost 40% of the cases is shone a light on the fact that tens of thousands, probably hundreds of thousands of Carolinians are living very close to the federal poverty level. All of us, we saw the long food lines in weeks, just weeks of the start of the pandemic, not months manifesting across our communities. Is shone a light on the fact that we have inadequate manufacturing capacity and capabilities for personal protective equipment, viral testing, contact tracing infrastructure, and so on. So if you ask me what was the number one singular lesson, it's all about public health, population health. Now, if we didn't know this before, it should be clear to us that our health, each of us here as individuals is interdependent on the health of each other and the communities in which we all live and work. So we have to double down. We have to double down on community health, addressing the, the social and environmental factors that exist within our communities.
1: Uh, we literally have two minutes left. Janet, I'm gonna give you an opportunity for the last question, two minutes left.
2: Well, I just think what you just said, Dr. Tunde, is um, in, incredible. And so what, what do you say to us, you know, as, as service providers, as business representatives, you know, what can we do to escalate that need that we are all interdependent, connected to each other, and the health of our community is based on how we interact with one another? What can we do?
4: That's a great question. And let me put it this way. It's gonna take a coalition of the willing. That's a term that I've used uh, more often these days than not. Um, none of us can do this alone. So we have to uh, come together very quickly. Let me, let me just give you some examples of, of things that we've done just in the in the recent past you know as we continue to observe viral spread case counts um, hospitalization mortality rates going up we knew this was a public no question public health crisis so we doubled down we have spent close to 50 million dollars today as I as I speak in supporting community-based organizations mm-hmm. that are front and center of addressing some of these issues, food insecurity, the social needs that are manifesting. We pledged, you're probably aware of the, it started off as the Million mask Campaign, which was spearheaded by Atrium. We were involved, Bank of America Lowe's, right, to distribute mask face coverage. Now it's a two million, because other businesses have come in, but with a particular uh, focus on our underserved, underprivileged, high-risk communities. Thirdly, most recently, we at Blue Cross convened a public-private sector partnership, a coalition of the willing, a few weeks ago, to begin to get together to support the Department of Health and Human Services in a comprehensive public health
1: I I hate to interrupt you because I know you are on a roll and you've got so much important information. Uh, So that means you're going to have to come back, and I hope you will, please. I will. And I, I wish I didn't have to cut you off, but thank you your leadership. Congratulations on the job. Janet, nice to see you again as well. Uh, Patrick, thank thank you you for joining us. Uh, You you all stay safe please and until next week I'm Chris William. Good night.
0: Major funding for Carolina Business Review provided by High Point University, Martin Marietta, Colonial Life, the Duke Endowment, Barings, Grant Thornton, Sonoko. Blue Cross Blue Shield of South Carolina, and by viewers like you. Thank you.